one who had struggles in biblical times, immense struggles. And yet, at the end of the struggles, came out believing in his Savior. His name was Job. And in the book of Job is our scripture for today. In chapter 9, verses 28 to 35, we have a first-person series of words that he's speaking. And here's what he says. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Who do you think he's talking to? Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it is now stands with me, I cannot. Thank you, Ed. You read that just like I could count on you reading it like. I really appreciate it. It's exactly what I needed. I um, remember a lecture. It, well, it was a sermon lecture uh, given by Don Pate, who on top of pastoring here for many years in the Arizona Conference and other places, when he was pastoring the Berkeley Church in Northern California, he was also enrolled at Cal and was getting his graduate degree in Jewish studies from the Jewish uh, Studies Department at the University of California, Berkeley. And it's that background that I was introduced to a fascinating insight that he was able to give and to talk about insight to our beliefs and integrations between Jewish and Christian theology. And there's something that should be noticed in our DNA as Christians that should take us deeper, much deeper than a superficial, what I would say, evangelical understanding of Jewish and Christian. We've had a tendency in the church to make it either or and to put the two in, in contradiction to one another. And I don't think that it was God's plan for the church at all. But Pastor Pate was teaching that day the idea of holiness and profane, the idea of what is truly holy and what makes that which is holy. 
You see, I, I thought about it, and traditional Christianity, especially with, uh, when you bring Christianity just a thousand years into existence, into the church, Christian theology begins to lean towards a root of inherent holiness or goodness. In other words, that there are things that are inherently holy in and amongst themselves, that there are just holy people, or that there are just holy things. And by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you have clerics and monks who are attempting to make and make themselves and stay holy by uh, religious asceticism, you know, discipline of, um, uh, you know, uh, flogging and whipping themselves and severe practices of discipline to try to uh, purge themselves of sin and sinful thoughts out of their minds. They would flog themselves every time that they had a sinful thought or uh, they would uh, stand on very narrow platforms on poles very, very high up and so they could only concentrate on not falling. And if I'm only concentrating on not falling, then I'm not sinning, right? Hairy shirts that would just make you itch constantly or belts with nails in them that you would wear afflicting pain, trying to purify through suffering. Jewish thought to me is much more appealing when it comes to holiness because Jewish thought really doesn't hold the idea that there is anything inherently holy in and amongst itself. Language, are there languages that are more sacred or more holy than others? Well, all human language, language was given by who? was given by God. See, no matter how a human communicates, God gave them the ability to be able to do so. But amongst language, there is Hebrew that was spoken by a particular group of people. And amongst Hebrew, there's Torah. Torah should be used for a holy purpose, should it not? And then amongst Torah is that one name, the ineffable name of God, most holy most holy. Land, all heaven and earth was created by who? Was created by God. But amongst the land and nations of the earth, there is Israel that has been called. And in the land of Israel, there is the temple mount, even holier. And amongst the temple mount, there is the most holy place. Time, all time belongs to who? To God. But amongst creation, there is a rest. Amongst creation, there is a Sabbath. And amongst all the Sabbaths that are given as rest, there is atonement, Yom Kippur, the most holy of all Sabbaths. All people are holy. All people are holy. Why? Because how many were not created by God? But amongst the people... There is Israel, Abraham's descendants. Amongst Abraham's descendants are Jacob's. And amongst, amongst Abraham's descendants, more holy is Levi. And amongst the Levites comes the priesthood. And amongst the priesthood is that one high priest. So it may sound like I did exactly what I said I wouldn't do, and that is come up with degrees of holiness. It isn't degrees of holiness. It's a difference in purpose amongst all these people. It's not 
that the high priest is more holy than any other human being. It's the high priest has a different purpose than every other human being. But if you took the most holy person and stuck him in the most holy place on the most holy day, and then he speaks the most holy word, the ineffable name of God, what do you think happens to time when that happens? So the author of Hebrews has settled in, if you will, on this Christ as high priest argument. In other words, he's making an appeal to these physical descendants of Israel for faith in Jesus. He's asking these descendants of Abraham to believe that Jesus is exactly who he calls to be and he's using the high priest as the ultimate illustration of what Jesus was called to be. For they all used to rely on him He's reminding them, you've been relying on him ever since the temple was given. If the high priest doesn't do what he's called to do, the temple does not work. The entire system is broken. You've got to have that guy, that guy who stands alone. So when it comes to this, the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, so what is it about his priesthood that should be concluded as most holy. In other words, what is it about the high priest, the human high priests that came before him and Jesus himself? So we're in chapter five of Hebrews and it begins this way. He starts with the human high priest. He starts with what we know the high priesthood is up until this point. And he says, every high priest from among who? From among men, from among mortals, from among humans, is put in charge of things pertaining to who? pertaining to God, on their behalf, all of humanity's behalf. This one high priest is put in charge to be in charge of things of God for them. So things of men and things of God all fall on this one's shoulders to offer gifts and sacrifices for what? For sins. So what was it that qualified the high priest to be one? What is its most endearing quality? is that he was what? He was human, that he was a man. See, if the high priest had required some sort of inherent holiness, God should have created an unfallen being for this job, amen? But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He didn't create another Adam in order to put on this uniform and take care of this. What he did was he picked another sinner out of a sea of sinners to be this high priest. What is his qualifications? Well, the law says that he has to have descended from what tribe? Levi, okay? Descendants of, etc., all the way back to Levi. But it all comes back not to genetics, but by who? God chose Levi, didn't he? He chose them. It was God that chose him. And did he choose Levi for any particular reason? Did he choose Levi because Levi was more holy than his brothers? No, as a matter of fact, he was worse than his brothers. He and Simeon have this thing around their resume that when their sister was raped by a pagan king, they killed the entire city. And it was Levi, and it was Simeon. 
The two most violent sons of Israel, if you, if you want to put it that way. And God chooses him. He's associated with violence. He's associated with vengeance. He's associated, by the way, with the ire of his father. Jacob is not happy at all when this happens. He tells him, you have brought a curse upon me, both of you. But isn't that kind of God's point? Their flawed humanity is what qualifies them to be what? To be priests. That's what qualifies them. He is able to deal gently. Because he chooses from uh, humanity, then the high priest is able to deal gently with the humanity that he's serving. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. Author of Hebrews is, is kind of nice. He's using nice language. He almost said it, didn't he? He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he is ignorant and wayward. He gave him a break, though, didn't he? And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sin as well as for those of the people. See, if idolaters were in charge of this whole thing, that's exactly what they would have done. They would have come up with a sinless high priest to carry this out. Somebody who had inherent holiness about him. That way the people could trust him, right? God said, no, not at all. The way that I'm gonna be trusted is that I'm going to deal with and within humanity. What made this high priest holy was not that he was not a sinner, what made him holy was his purpose. And his purpose only came from where? Only came from God. See, we have a tendency to say, well, no, his purpose had to do with genetics. It had to do with him descending from the tribe of Levi, yada, yada, yada. It had to do with uh, Levi, that Moses was in Levi too. No. Did God have to choose Levi? No, he didn't have to. He could have chosen Simeon if he was looking for the same set of sins. It was his purpose. What makes the high priest qualified was that he was mortal, that he was human. And he even has to offer sacrifices for his own sin. It's his weakness as a human that qualifies him. Because he should always have something about him when he goes in and he offers the sacrifices. He should have something about him when he performs these duties. And number one that he should have about him is humility. His sin needs cleansing as well as the people's. He does not have an inherent holiness. It comes from nowhere from within him. And where does it come from? He doesn't presume to take this honor. But he takes it only when called by God. That's what made him holy. Was his purpose. And then he was called by God. Just as who was? Just as Aaron was. So any time during this entire history now, the 4,000 year history of the temple. I'm, I'm fudging the numbers a little bit, but you, you get the idea, <laughs> okay? From the time that the tabernacle was built in the wilderness and the system was put in place to the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it's about 4,000 years. It's a heck of a long time. 
And if there's any time where a priest ever wanted to believe that he was holy because of his genetics, or he was holy and that's what qualified him to do this, he was to be reminded that he comes from the very first high priest, and his name was who? Was Aaron. And what does Aaron have on his resume that should remind every high priest that only God can call you and give you holiness and that you didn't have it yourself? Because when you look at Aaron's resume, it looks good in the personal, uh, what, what do they call it, the very first one? The, the, the biographical information, right? I was Moses' brother. I was his mouthpiece. I was his intermediary between him and Pharaoh. That looks good on a resume, doesn't it? I'm from the tribe of Levi. God chose Levi. That looks really good. But the very first thing that you come down to experience and you say, okay, Aaron, so what is your experience as high priest? Oh, well, the first thing I did was build a golden calf and make Israel worship it. And in the biographical section, I read here that your sons were supposed to serve. What happened to them? I could make an argument to say that Nadab and Abihu began to believe that they were holy because of their office, and that's the strange fire that they took into the Lord. They didn't take the humility in. They didn't remember that they were sinners when they walked in and boldly, boldly asked God to do whatever it is they were asking them to do that day. They didn't have the humility of the Son of Man. You can't take this honor, the author of Hebrews says. You can't take it, you can't grasp it. There isn't anything human uh, as far as the humanity that contributes to the holiness. God says, I'm the only one that's holy. And I'll call you to a holy purpose. But wait, unholy people? You bet, there is no other kind. Let me ask you, after a couple of thousand years, do you think that the humility stayed as the DNA of the priesthood? Do you think the humility was always at the forefront or within the genetics of the high priest, especially the high priest? You don't need to be second temple historians to see the shape the the priesthood is in by Jesus' day. When Jesus is finally brought to trial on that fateful night, how many high priests does he have to be shown to? Two. Annas and Caiaphas. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What happened? You're supposed to be high priest for life. For life. It's their version of a Supreme Court justice. It's yours for how long? However long you can hold on to it. You're supposed to be it for life. There's two high priests in Jesus' day. John actually says, too, that when, after he was taken, it says that they took him to Caiaphas, for he was high priest that year. What the world is going on with the priesthood that you even have years that they're serving or not serving? It's because by Jesus' day, the priesthood had become a ruling class. And it was no longer a religious duty. The religious duty was turned into family and politics and money. And there was no humility about them anymore. Especially this guy. Especially Caiaphas. When they begin to argue as to whether or not Jesus could truly be the son of God, 
the chief priest with Caiaphas' chief voice says, has any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? That's the argument right there. The argument is, he can't be of God because I say so. And John gives this very, very, I, I guess, uh, warning, I guess, uh, the, the way that I would see it. Because when Caiaphas made that pronouncement, you guys don't know anything. You don't know anything. You know nothing, he says. It is better for one man to die, remember, than an entire nation to die. John gives this kind of um, eerie prophecy that says that he didn't say it on his own, but that because he was high priest, it was a prophetic utterance. God said, even amongst the corrupt priesthood, John is saying, we recognize that the voice of God could still be speaking. So an inherent glory or an inherent holiness in the position was never supposed to be the case. So it's amazing that when it comes time then to talk about Jesus as high priest, he doesn't change gears and say, okay, now let's talk about inherent holiness. He actually keeps the same tactic with Jesus. Listen to what he says next. He goes, so also, so now who are we talking about? Also talking about Christ as high priest. It's the next verse. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was what? Appointed. He said, just like Aaron and all the others, Jesus didn't take the position because he was holy. He didn't take the position because he was the most qualified. He took it because what? He was appointed. If there was anybody who could walk in and say, you know what, that chair is mine. It was him, right? But he didn't. He waited, quote unquote, until the fullness of time and he was appointed. He was called. By the one who said to him, you are my what? You are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask, let, me, let me ask you this, should there be anything else on the high priest's resume than that? Jesus, if he wanted to, could very well walk around with those words on an ID card and flash that badge whenever he wanted. I'm his son. Beat that. And he says in another place, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to talk about Melchizedek in another, another place. But I love how the author, well, actually, I don't love it. <laughs> For somebody who's trying to go through it, you know, go through it uh, chapter by chapter, the author of Hebrews is very frustrating because he introduces Melchizedek here, but he's not going to really talk about it until two chapters later. That's hard when I'm trying to go through it chapter by chapter. But remember this, in the order of who? In the order of Melchizedek, okay. Jesus himself, who very well could have made the office a glory for himself, made it a climb up the glory ladder, argue with anybody who had an argument with him that the office belongs to him, because he's God's son, he's the one who doesn't do it. And why not? For the same reason the high priest was supposed to have a humility about him. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Humble like a what? 
like a little child. See, Paul argues the same thing about glory and ambition. In Philippians, he tells the church, he says, do nothing. How much? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How much are we to do? Just a little bit of ambition? That's not bad, is it? Just a little bit of conceit? If conceit gives me some self-confidence, it's okay, right? Do what? Nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and to add to the author of Hebrews, not just form, but the exact radiance of God, right? Though he was that, did not regard equality with God as something to be what? As something to be exploited. By the way, there's Jesus' argument himself for the Trinity. Paul saying that before he gave it up, he was absolutely what? Equal with God. And by the way, in this argument that the Hebrews is making, he didn't give up his equality. What makes him equal is that he's willing to give it up in order to come for the sake of others. That's what keeps him equal. That's what sets him apart from a human high priest. But he what? He emptied himself. Nobody took it from him. Nobody takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death what? Even death on a cross. I could go off on a huge rabbit trail about how humiliating dying on a cross is. But Easter's coming, isn't it? About a month. He actually takes everything that would qualify him to be above it all, to be inherently holy, up and above all humanity. He takes what, is in, what would qualify him to do that and he empties himself of it, even unto death. He puts it to death. His willingness to be humbled, not just humbled, but humiliated. There's a big difference between humility and humiliation. He experienced humiliation. So we wouldn't have to. Humility is something we should all strive for. Humiliation, he saved us from. He gave us our dignity back. He gave humanity dignity. So Hebrews continues, the author of Hebrews continues to enlighten us on this. So in the days of his flesh, when? when he was walking and talking on the planet, okay, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of what? Because of reverent submission. Notice, he's not demanding that what his office demands. I'm your son, you've got to give me what I want. No, not my will, Lord, but your will. When Jesus, let me, let me ask you this. It's a quarter tell. I don't know. 
Let me ask you this. It says that when he, in his days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why? Did Jesus have to pray? And I'm putting have in quotes and capital letters. I have it right here like that. Did he have to pray? Does he have to go to the Father when he and the Father are one? That's the point, right? He didn't what? He didn't have to. He didn't have to. Prayers and supplications, why go to somebody for supplication? Okay, something he's, that he wants from the Father, which he taught us to do. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. He's going to the Father for daily bread, and he has the power to make bread out of stones. Did he have to pray? He didn't. Then why? He did it for us. He willingly put himself in a position of need even though he is the one all holy omnipotent omniscient who has no need. See when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan the very first thing Satan told him was to what? Turn those stones into what? Into bread. Think about that. Think about that. We're gonna, we're gonna come up on a verse in Hebrews that we've argued for, for centuries now, which I'm hoping to be able that by the time we get there, we're not gonna argue about it. We'll actually know what it means when we get there. But it's gonna be that, that Jesus was tried and tempted in all manners like who? In all manners like us, right? Okay, I'm gonna, by the time I get there, I'm gonna say, no, it's not true. He was not tried and tempted in all manners like us because after 40 days, Satan says, turn these stones into what? He hasn't had food or water for 40 days. Is there anything wrong with wanting a little bread? No, absolutely not. But Jesus refuses and tells Satan that he's placing himself in submission to the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone. And I know that Satan just kind of stood back and went, what? You have the power to do more than that. And it's something that a fallen son of man does not understand, simply does not understand. That when another son of man has the power to do anything and he won't do it, we don't get it. It's in our DNA. It's in our fallen DNA to not get it. He wasn't tempted in everything as we were. He was tempted way beyond what we can ever comprehend being tempted to do. We're tempted to do something wrong. Satan comes to us and he, and he sits on our shoulder. The bad angel sits on our shoulder and says, do something wrong. It's not that big. We, we look at sin and we trivialize it and we make it, and we make it sound like something's worse than the others. It's, it's, it's okay. It's a little white lie. It's, it's okay. We're tempted to do something wrong. Jesus was tempted to do something right. But yet to do it with his own authority and his own power. And he said, no, I love my brothers and sisters so much that I will place myself in submission to another power because they have to. If he had done that that day, we would never have been able to trust him with that power. 
and he knows it. He did that for us. Although he was a son, he learned what? He learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered. Now we're gonna start rolling into only his role as high priest, and we won't get quite get there yet. I think it's in about two more chapters. But again, what's the reason he's suffering? Is he suffering to make his flesh more holy? Is he suffering to try to purge himself and cleanse himself from sin? Is he suffering to become better than somebody else? He's suffering for who? Us. You see what makes him perfect? No ambition, no conceit. Do nothing out of ambition and conceit, but have the mind of Christ. Son of man didn't need to learn anything. He places himself in a position to not just be son of man, not just be the holy undefiled high priest, but to suffer for us. And again, the point isn't the process of suffering or the means of suffering or the level of suffering that he went through, but the one who needs no qualifications except that he is the son still suffering. And it isn't the suffering, it's the why he's suffering. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Sympathize, empathize with who? With our weaknesses. Does he have any weaknesses? No. But he placed himself in an area of weakness so that he could empathize with us. But we don't have, an, but, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet what? Without sin. Empathy, sympathy. That we can come to believe that he knows us through and through and still ask us for our faith. He doesn't want anybody to get him on a technicality. There are no technicalities. He is the son of man. And the son of God. And the Holy Spirit of creative force. He is. Period. That we can come to believe. Having been made what? Having been made perfect. And again, why was he made perfect? In his willingness to suffer. That was it. His willingness, his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's his perfection. The love of God is his perfection. Having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Again, there's this idea that he did not have to go through with it. Did he? No. He could have given up at any time. And he could have walked back to heaven still being the son of God, still being the undefiled high priest if that was his reasoning, if that's what he wanted. He said, but that's not what I want on my resume. I want my resume to be a true son of man. 
having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. His perfection is not his position as son of God, but his perfection involves being our high priest. Not one who can't empathize or sympathize, not one who doesn't have the humility. To have the humility of being a fellow sinner, yet not, I mean, yet without sin. I, I, awestruck is not a, doesn't even come close. Human language doesn't come close to this. That's why is the word become flesh. His perfection is offering what belonged to him as a son of God, then to all of us. Did you think that he did this, the reason he did this was that so that he could take his perfection as high priest and actually apply it to our account, which is what a priest does inside that little place. His blood, his finger, seven times on the very Ark of the Covenant itself. And then comes out and tells Israel, it's done. It's finished. Check your record. Call up your app right now, check your record. See what your bank balance is. Perfection. In Job 7, after all he's gone through, losing his family, losing everything. He's lost everything in a Holocaust. And he doesn't realize that it almost came down. The reason that it's happening is because Satan bet God that he could have Job. And in Job 7, Job uh, uh, echoes all of humanity's anguish. This isn't just Job speaking. I want, you to, I want you to listen. And doesn't he sound like any one of us at any given time or dark time in our lives? Don't human beings have a hard service on earth? And are not their days like the shadows or days of a laborer? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, like laborers who look to their wages, so I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Isn't that humanity's cry? How many here have had that same cry in an hour of darkness? Describes humanity's anguish. Job's anguish that he's going through, which I do not deny, is far beyond what I could ever imagine. But he's speaking for humanity, isn't he? In a way, Job right now is a son of who? He's a son of man, isn't he? Therefore, I won't restrain my mouth, he says. Since this is the thing, since this is what's happening, I won't restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Listen to him, I need to tell somebody. Not just tell somebody, I need to tell somebody who can do something about it. Right? I loathe my life. I will not live forever. Let me alone. My days are a breath. He's telling God, get off my back. What are human beings that you make so much of them? That you set your mind on them. Visit them every morning. Visit them every moment. Get off my back. David said those same words, but in a very different tone, didn't he? What is man that you are mindful of us? 
Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone so that I could swallow my spit. He sees God as relentlessly, relentlessly doing this to him, that he doesn't even have time to make spit in his mouth. Because what is he gonna do with it when he makes it? He just didn't say that. It's hard to listen to, isn't it? You and I can argue all day long on whether God causes suffering, okay? You can argue all day long. God causes it, God allows it, la da 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 Job would look at you and spit. Because Job doesn't care. Job believes that God is responsible. He holds God responsible for this. Why? Because God told him he could. I am When he uttered those words, I am, Job knew, Job knows, this is the guy to talk to. He believes that he's doing it to Job and he's doing it to him personally. And then he says, guess why don't you pardon my transgression? Take away my iniquity. If that's the reason you're harassing me, is that the reason you're torturing me, is because I'm a sinner, then why not just forgive the sin? For now, I live on the earth. But one day you'll seek me, and I shall not be. Those words just kill me. Because you know what that is? That's a hurt child. That's a hurt baby turning away from his parents saying, you'll be sorry. I'll be gone one day. You won't be able to find me, and you'll be sorry. You know, and all the while, he's got believers in God sitting in front of him. He has the church sitting in front of him, telling him, you know what? If you'll just seek God, if you'll make supplication to the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. Who's the church blaming Job for his troubles? Job, if you weren't such a sinner, God would hear your prayers. Yep, Job still searches. Even though the church is telling him you can't. You can't go to God in your condition. Job answers in in chapter nine, verse one, he says, he answers, he says, indeed I know this is so. How can a mortal be just before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him one in a thousand. How true is this? Isn't this humanity's problem? Is there anybody here who can stand just before God? At least if you were in Job's day. Today, right now, you should have all answered yes because you have a high priest who has done this for you. But if you're Job, there is no answer, is there? He's absolutely right. I can't do this. If one wished to contend with him, He's God and I'm not. I'll tell you what's amazing though is that even though he holds Job, Job holds God uh, completely responsible for the human condition and what is happening to him, he still wants to stand before him. He still wants to come to him. He still wants God to answer him. This is the calamity of sin. There's God, there's fallen man, there's a great chasm created by my sin. I can't get to him. He does not hear me. My words do not go that far. He doesn't care. So Job says, I'll tell you what I need. 
He's not immortal as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no what? There is no umpire. There's no officiator. There's no intercessor. I've got no priest. One who could lay a hand on us both. One who understands the power and the divinity of God. And the one who understands the fallenness and the horrible, naked, pitiable, sinful condition of man. I need one that will bring both of those together. One who understands. Job's asking for a high priest. But not the ones that have to offer year after year, offering after offering, sin after sin. He wants the high priest. Job's asking for Jesus. See, the comforters give high-minded philosophy, their opinion of who God is and what he's like. But Job needs Jesus. I don't need your opinion. Again, their opinion is tainted by conceit and ambition. Their opinion is tainted, and actually they feel pretty good sitting there because they, they sit there and say, you know what, I really thought I was a sinner, but now that I see this guy, whoa! That's why they won't shut up. They keep throwing out their resume to Job. If you were a little less of a sinner, hey, by the way, I don't know what sin it was, but why don't you tell me what it was? Even Job knows that to bridge bridge the chasm, he needs a son of man and a son of God. Does the son of man really know what it's like to be human? Can he really bridge the chasm? Moses looked at God on Sinai. I really believe he looked at what God showed himself to be. He looked right into the burning bush and he said, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? God says, I've heard the groans and the cries of my people and I have come down. I want to bridge the gap between me and the cries and groans of my people. And Moses says, but why have you done that? Why did you do that? And God's answer is, so that you would know that I do. I am who I am. See, Philip Yancey writes in an essay called Distress Signals, says to the answer of why Jesus suffered, the Bible gives the most mysterious answer. Suffering served as kind of a learning experience for God. Such words seem faintly heretical, but I'm merely following Hebrews. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He just quoted verse eight, just where we were, right? Elsewhere, that book tells us that the author of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Chapter two, verse 10. These words, full of fathomless mystery, surely mean at least this. The incarnation had meaning for God as well as us. On one level, of course, God understood physical pain, having designed the marvelous nervous system that carries it to our brains as a warning against harm, but had a spirit ever felt physical pain? Not until the incarnation. In 33 years on earth, he learned about poverty and about family squabbles and social rejection and verbal abuse and betrayal. And he learned about pain. 
what it feels like to have an accuser leave a red imprint of his fingers on your face, what it feels like to have a whip studded with metal lash across your back, what it feels like to have a crude iron spike pounded through muscle, tendon, and skin. On earth, God learned all of that. In some incomprehensible way, because of Jesus, God hears our groans differently. The author of Hebrews marveled that whatever we're going through, God has gone through. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who having graduated from the school of suffering is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Because of Jesus, God understands, truly understands our groans. We need no longer to cry into the abyss, hey, are you listening? By joining us on earth, Jesus gave visible historical proof that God hears our groans and even groans them with us. It's his humanity that touches us. His humanity will touch others. His humanity is now your humanity. He hears our groans. Will we hear others? So at the end of this chapter, the author of Hebrews asks us one thing. When are you gonna get this? speaking to all of us who have been professed believers, speaking to all of us who claim to have understood the sanctuary and understood its message, end time, uh, before time, uh, heavenly sanctuary, earthly. He's talking to all of us. When are you gonna get this? You claim that you know, because in verse 11 he says, Is it about this, he says, about just what I've summed it up. We have much to say that is hard to explain because you've become dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word, word of righteousness. Notice, unskilled in the word of what? Righteousness. He's saying your understanding, your, your, your understanding of the sanctuary without Jesus as high priest, you don't understand righteousness. Remember I pointed out last week that I had a member come to me a few years ago to point out to me after preaching on the sanctuary, after showing how I believe that the sanctuary perfectly illustrated, and that was my problem was I used the word perfectly illustrated, what Jesus has done for us. He pointed out to me, he says, you do know that the earthly sanctuary only forgave intentional sin. And I panicked. I panicked because I'm an Adventist. Adventists say that, that it does perfectly illustrate, don't we? Don't we say that? That the sanctuary teaches us everything that we need to know about what Jesus did for us and how he provided righteousness. So I panicked and I said, I said well, you know, that word, I'm not sure, and, and so forth and so on. And he just smiled at me. See, but his problem was, was that what he wanted me to say was that today we have no right to ask Jesus for forgiveness for an intentional sin. Because that's not what the sanctuary teaches. And thank God for Hebrews. Because Hebrews says, no, you don't learn more about Jesus 
because of the sanctuary? You learn more about the sanctuary because of Jesus. And no, I'll, I'll say it right now. The earthly sanctuary could not forgive intentional sin. You know why? Because the fullness of time hadn't come yet. Because they had a a conceited, ambitious high priest giving sacrifices. Because the blood of bulls and goats do not forgive sin. We're waiting. We're waiting for that one high priest to not just pass through the earthly sanctuary, to not just walk in the little room but to pass through the heavens, the heavenly sanctuary, and bring its cleanness, if you will, its cleansing down to us, our, us, us, the sanctuary. Solid foods for the mature. For those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Our humility should say that we never have, we should have never said that something is perfectly illustrated when actually the author of Hebrews says there is only one perfect illustration, Jesus. So how much longer are we gonna argue about his nature and what actually qualified him to do whether or not intentional sin could be forgiven, whether or not he went through suffering in order to cleanse his fallen nature? When are, we going to, when are we going to quit arguing? How much longer are we going to stay at a distance because of our own sin? Teach people the same, that you can't come to God because of your sin. When are we going to quit and to begin to trust our high priest as our suffering servant? And that he suffered to make his perfection ours. And all we needed to do was believe it. When? Author of Hebrews, man, just, I have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain because you guys are dull. But I thank the Lord that he is the light of the world. And he could take the dullest, darkest light, uh, light that I have to offer and make it pure. Our high priest, God's last day radiance. Hebrews, I told you it was going to be fun, didn't I? I'm having fun. You guys too? Okay, good, good. I'm going to keep going as long as I'm having fun. Yeah, that's ambitious and has conceit. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I told you this would be fun. 